0: Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lance Therner. This week we'll be talking to Professor Suman Seth about his new book, Difference and Disease, Medicine, Race, and the Eighteenth-Century British Empire, out from Cambridge University Press earlier this year, 2018. Suman Seth is professor in the Department of Science and Technology Studies at Cornell University. And his book, Difference in Disease, provides a new angle on the formation of the ideas of race and the development of the British Empire. While scholars have often addressed this phenomenon through the lenses of academic anatomy and natural history, Seth suggests that medical care and theories of pathology were central to how Britons began to see their bodies as fundamentally distinct from other peoples. This figured strongly in debates over abolition and the legitimacy of slavery and provided the precedent for 19th century scientific racism. Professor Suman Seth, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Uh, thank you, Lance. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, as we uh, are talking about your book, uh, Difference in Disease, I'd like to begin a, a little bit of how you got to this project and your background as a scholar.
1: Sure. I mean, it's it's quite a long path in the end because I started off as a historian of physics. I wrote my first book on uh, the history of the quantum theories, so late nineteenth, early twentieth century German physics. Um, which is a long way away, of course, from 18th century medicine, race, and colonialism. Um, I I found myself wanting to work on something to do with the history of race in particular and with post-colonial theory, which I'd published on a little bit. I went looking around for a topic. I was originally thinking that I'd do something on German colonialism, probably early 20th century, um, so, you know, stay roughly with some things, but also change one or two things about what I was working on. Um, what I got really interested in after reading for a while was uh, material on what in German is called a Klimatisation or a climatisation. Um, and I got really interested then in uh, the history of that German concept. There's a lot of work in English on 19th century acclimatization but actually after a while I realized that we didn't know a lot about 18th century acclimatization or uh, the term that was actually used in the 18th century, seasoning. So it was actually the history of seasoning that I got interested in uh, and that led me to this book. And so you know this book is about
0: uh, the development of the idea of race in medicine and um, you part of your intervention is to bring the history of medicine into uh, the histories we have about the development of race, and especially scientific racism. Right. Why have prior scholars not looked at the medical aspects of this, and why is it important
1: to do so now? Yeah, I think that's uh, a great question. I think a big chunk of the material on the history of race science Beginning in the seventies and eighties, say a lot of that was part of a movement, part of the social construction of scientific knowledge movement, um, that was interested in showing that uh, sciences that we now think of as, say, pseudosciences, um, as non-scientific, were in their own period seen as fully scientific, and that many of the people we think of as contemporary heroes of science actually worked in um, in more greater or lesser ways. stuff that we now think of as not only ethically dubious, but kind of intellectually dubious. Um, One of the things I think that led to was if you really want to make that case most strongly, what you don't want to focus on is people really that we haven't heard of before. You really want to make the case that it really was kind of the greatest minds of the age who were interested in this material. So there's lots of work on Darwin and race and other uh, great thinkers as we think of them today. Um, I think a lot of the people who were doing medicine were people in the colonies rather than, say, in London and France. Um, And also, I think that we have placed a kind of primacy on the scientific nature of fields like biology and natural history over medicine. And so I think that um, we underplayed medicine as an area where race was really being made And the problem with that is that I think that actually medicine is where most people encountered racial ideas, because of course, most of the people with some scientific training in the colonies, for example, where people were treating um, people of different races, for example, were actually medical men. In fact, most of the most prominent thinkers of the early 19th century, even that we know about who were writing on race were actually trained in medicine racial anatomy which is what we know about that kind of training came through a medical training yeah and um, working on that then uh, you know
0: part of what you are doing in this book is to look beyond just anatomy into
1: right.
0: uh, theories of pathology why what does that add to our ideas about the formation or the 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 the, the work that the idea of race does in the empire
1: yeah i think that I mean there are multiple answers we can begin with a kind of contemporary answer which is that if you look at the way that race is coming back into scientific discourse today it's precisely around issues of pathology now framed in terms of genetics so there's been a number of op-eds in the New York Times and so on talking about the fact that you should use the concept of race because different races have different susceptibilities to certain diseases. So the claim is that Ashkenazi Jews, for example, have a higher tendency to get Tay-Sachs disease and so on. And so the way that people are arguing that race has a scientific meaning is in fact in terms of medicine and in terms of pathologies. And what I think is that actually that has been one of the standard ways, perhaps the most standard way, that race entered scientific discourse. I would actually argue that an emphasis on anatomy in the 19th century and the early 20th is the kind of outlier. And that from Hippocrates onwards, the way of relating human physical difference and other claims, naturalistic claims, was in terms most particularly of medicine. So let's get into the history a little bit then.
0: So if we go back to the beginning of the study, uh, you know, this is the late 17th century. Um, it, it's hard in, in ways to get our minds into their heads because the idea of tropical medicine, for instance, is so ingrained in us. With, right. You know, Zika and Ebola in the news and, and right. things like that. Uh, so it's a bit difficult for us to understand the their understanding of the geography of disease. Can you kind of map that out a little bit? What the you know the early Enlightenment uh, idea of uh,
1: of uh, the, of the geography of disease was absolutely well. I mean, part of it it really does go back to Hippocrates, the standard person that they cite in say early eighteenth century texts is indeed our fourth century BC uh, quote unquote father of medicine, Hippocrates. And the particular text is Airs, waters and places. And the argument is the particular climates. Uh, and we should call them probably microclimates, they're not macro in the sense that we understand them, have uh, characteristic diseases. Um, And that's exactly the kind of argument that they're making, say, for the West Indies, that Jamaica has diseases that correspond to its climate. So we have a humoral theory. uh, We have some humours that are hot and wet, some humours that are cold and dry. And in climates that are also hot and wet, we have an excess of a hot and wet humour and that leads to certain characteristic diseases. So for example, fevers. Fevers are associated with heat, and then we have an extensive discourse about the number of fevers that you have in warm climates, and that's the language, not the tropics or tropical diseases, but characteristically the diseases of warmer climates. Now on the one hand, that then maps out differences between places. Some places are indeed warmer than other places, But what's interesting is that they don't make that kind of stark distinction. You only have this disease in this place, which is our tropical, you know, Ebola or Zika, exactly, kind of argument, and you don't have that disease in this place. What you have is a much more malleable set of claims about various kinds of relationships. So, one of the things that they claim, for example, is that you get different diseases in the summer than you do in the winter, and that the West Indies. As a climate is kind of like Britain's summer. So the kinds of diseases that you get in Britain's summer, dysentery or fever and so on, are the kinds of diseases that you get all year round in the West Indies. So on the one hand, it's a claim about difference, but it is also constantly a set of claims that's drawing connections across places as well. Yeah, and so uh,
0: as this Uh, develops into uh, slightly more starker differences. Mm. Where does this idea of seasoning come from and what does it mean to them?
1: So seasoning is quite an old concept. Uh, We already see it in the 17th century. The way I normally try and express this is that there are two kinds of questions um, that a doctor is thinking about as you're moving from, say, England to Jamaica. So one of the questions is, um, why do I get so sick when I make that shift? And then the second question is, why, if I survive that sickness, do I never really get that sick again? And the answer to that second question is, you've become seasoned to the climate. And part of that, again, within a humoral system is that you have a certain balance of humours in your cold, wet and rainy England. Uh, A dominance of colder humors, for example. And to be happy in the West Indies, you need a different balance. Slightly more warmer humors, for example. And then one of the explanations is that a seasoning sickness, which people talk about quite a lot, is essentially your body going through the shift from one humoral balance to another humoral balance.
0: And so there's sort of a fundamental... uh... So so Jamaica, for instance, or the West Indies is, is in some ways fundamentally the same as England.
1: In some ways and also very different. So it's a summer country all year round is one of the ways that people talk about it. So on the one hand, that draws a connection. It's like England in the summer, so it's not completely different. But on the other hand, unlike England, which has squally cold weather that leads to things like very bad lung complaints and so on, you don't have nearly so much of that. In the West Indies, because it's warmer, so the claim goes. Yeah, and so
0: was seasoning. Uh, you know, more than just a theory of disease, and much more uh, a driver of certain kinds of policy.
1: Yes, well, it certainly becomes one. It's a great question. So, multiple things flow from this. Of course, one of them, in terms of the slave trade, which I discuss in some detail. Um, there's an economic rationale that then flows from this. So one of the things that abolitionists point to, and it has a real effect by the end of the 18th century, is the number of new slaves who die in what is called the seasoning. So that estimate is anywhere from 25 to 50 percent of all new slaves die in that first disease, in the seasoning. Um, So that's a absolutely horrific number of people which as i say abolitionists talk about in some detail it also then within an economic logic of slavery means that a quote unquote seasoned slave is more valuable for than uh, an unseasoned slave so there's a premium placed on seasoned slaves of somewhere between 30 and 40% on their price so it it is built into then the economic system of slavery Then in terms of the military, yes, there are extensive uh, arguments and claims and suggestions which suggest, for example, that British soldiers should leave England while it's still warm in England and then try and get to Jamaica with stopping off points so that they have time to adjust little by little to the climate that they'll eventually get to. There's an idea in a sense that the seasoning sickness will be even worse if the shock of the shift is too great. And so you have a whole set of uh, commands about how quickly sailors or soldiers can be sent from England to the West Indies. Yeah, and,
0: and, and so do you see this as a, as a moment where uh, imperial interests are really driving the change of, of British medicine?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of the argument of the book is that indeed we have had, particularly within the history of medicine, there are market exceptions, of course, Mark Harrison, whose books I really love is one of them, but a lot of the work on the history of medicine really has, particularly intellectual history, focused on Europe, um, even within the age of empire. But I think a turn is happening where people... Increasingly, are arguing that yes, uh, imperialism is leading to fairly striking changes, even in metropolitan medicine. But of course, within imperial medicine writ large, that we are not to see this simply as medicine begins in Europe and is then shipped out to the colonies; that it is being shaped by the needs of the colonies themselves. But even that then. That the needs of the colonies are actually shaping what medicine looks like in London and Paris and so on. Yeah, and, and one of the examples you give that of that is is the work of John Pringle. Can you, right. yeah, who is that, and explain a little bit about what you're doing there in the book? So John Pringle is uh, probably the most important uh, military medical writer of the 18th century. He makes he writes uh, a very important book in the 1750s that argues. Um, for explanations for why you get major illnesses in army encampments. Um, and one of the things that he's really arguing for is that we should pay less attention to things like diet, although that matters very much, um, and more and more attention to uh, putrid conditions of the camp. So his argument is that It's putrefaction in various guises that is causing illness in camps. Now, one of the things that that means is that he's actually less critical than many military writers of soldiers themselves. There's a very moralistic discourse uh, throughout the 18th century and the 19th, for that matter, uh, which suggests that it's kind of soldiers' faults that they're getting sick. They're dissolute. They don't take care of themselves. They drink too much. Um, And so his argument is, look it's not just what they're eating and what they're doing, it's also the conditions in which they're living. And so you can change that quite dramatically by cleaning up sources of putrefaction and so on, um, and dramatically improving army life. Now, that's an argument that he brings up in the context of European campaigns. But what's interesting is that putrefaction is generally and traditionally associated most, of course, with warm climates. That's where meat rots quickest. And so that this then becomes a central way of organizing and thinking about diseases in warm climates, particularly then uh, diseases in warm climates in military encampments.
0: And um,
1: so is that how does that lead us into the idea of race? So part of what really got me interested, so as I said, what I was really interested in originally was this notion notion of seasoning. And the interesting thing about seasoning is that even though exactly as we've been talking about, it focuses on certain forms of difference between places. What's interesting about that discourse is that it's not at all about race. It's about nativity. It's about where you're born. And indeed, a lot of the discourse that's very interesting in the 18th century will begin by saying things like, well, of course, black slaves get different diseases in the West Indies than white people. But then rather than saying that's because they're black, in fact, the discourse is it's because they're slaves. They don't eat very well. They're treated very badly. They have very poor housing. So it's not at all a racialist discourse. And then seasoning adds to that by saying, look, it's about where you're born. So even incredibly racialist and racist authors will sometimes make claims where they pair black and white people born in the West Indies as having the same kinds of diseases because they're seasoned to the climate and comparing that to newly arrived Europeans. So it's not white people joined together, it's people who are born in the West Indies joined together and newly arrived Europeans as the separate category. And so what I was interested in then is when that shifts. When you start getting claims which are actually the more important thing here is not where somebody was born or where they've spent five or ten years, but about racial differences that last for generations, that are sticky, and that cause differences in diseases.
0: And so, uh, you know, if 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 whites and blacks in Jamaica, for instance, are have the same uh, the same bodies
1: and the same yep. potentials to get sick, uh, you know, what happens if they went back to England? So that's exactly it, and and that's exactly the right question. And indeed. If you become seasoned to the West Indies, you will suffer when you go back to England. That's exactly right. So Creoles born in the West Indies who go back to England will suffer as their humors have to readjust. And indeed, it can happen quite quickly. In fact, one of my favorite lines from all of this is a discussion Um, Benjamin Rush, it never made it into the book, but now I can talk about it. Benjamin Rush um, notes at one point where he's trying to explain why it is that uh, people seem to be able to get the yellow fever more than once in Philadelphia, where he is after 1793, whereas in lots of other places, people seem to become seasoned to the yellow fever. And his explanation is that a winter in Philadelphia is as bad as three years of winters somewhere else. So that in essence, every year people lose their seasoning through the awfulness of Philadelphia's winter. Um, so yeah, absolutely. You can lose seasoning once you've gained it and it leads to medical problems.
0: Hmm. And so when do we start to see the, the idea that race is a, a cause?
1: So what I argue is that you you really don't see it up to the 1750s and that really when you can start spotting it is around the 1770s around exactly the time you start getting more racialist claims in general and that it's tied in many ways to the abolitionist movement that it's a reaction to abolitionism and the argument there the kind of broader argument is um there were many justifications used for slavery since, of course, the time at least of the Romans and Greeks. What the abolitionist movement does is argue that there are kind of humanitarian objections to any of those reasons, that humans are a brotherhood in essence And that all of the legal reasons that you might have for thinking that slavery is okay, actually render it not so. And so it's simply morally wrong to enslave one's brother. And one of the responses to that is then to argue, now in some detail, there had been earlier claims, but now in quite extensive detail, that black and white people aren't brothers. So what you increasingly get is an extensive naturalistic argument about the differences between black and white people that can be used at least in part as a rationalization for uh, forms of enslavement. And so you see uh, the abolitionist movement rising in the 1760s and increasingly a larger discourse of what we would call scientific racism in the 1770s as a result and medicine is one of the places where you see that you start getting arguments for example that say that it's not morally wrong to make black people work in the burning heat of um the west indies this argument had been made for some time it now acquires a naturalistic even harder gloss um it's not morally wrong because they're actually physically different from white people. It would be morally wrong to make white people do it. But since black people have different bodies to white people, it's not morally wrong to force them to work in those fields. Right. And and to kind of highlight this
0: uh, important turning point, you look at the, uh, the infamous uh, History yes. of Jamaica by Edward Long. And I mean, he's a it's a fascinating interpretation, in part because it he is such a vehement racist. But at the yep. same time, there's these limits to what he finds he can argue to justify slavery um, and it, and kind of the limits of at at this moment in the 1770s of how how hard scientific racism could get. Could you
1: explain that a little bit? Yeah. So, um. It's worth comparing it to something like 19th century racism, where it is indeed, as you say, very hard. Um, Long, for example, is not willing to say say something like, look, I opened up uh, a number of skulls. Black people and white people have different brains and that's why they're different. That's absolutely what's said in the 19th century. Morton famously argues that there are different skull sizes and therefore different brain sizes, and that's a difference between black and white people. Long, who I stand by, it's a big claim, but nonetheless I stand by, is the most odious racist of the 18th century, nonetheless does not make the claim that Black people and white people have different brains. He actually says explicitly the anatomist cannot see the difference between these two brains. The difference then, because he thinks that there is a difference, is in essence a spiritual one. He thinks that God has put less um, intellectual stuff into uh, black people than white people. So it's a kind of a—it's not a materialist argument, which is what you'll see in the nineteenth century, but it is, of course, a very racialist one, a racist one, straightforwardly.
0: Yeah, and he's a, a polygenist. He is.
1: Yeah, and
0: uh, but what's interesting here, I think, in this history, is that you know polygenism is often uh, sort of the, the essence. We think of as scientific race of scientific right. racism, uh, but here, when it comes to pathology, it it ends up having many different possibilities. And yeah,
1: I think that's right.
0: Yes. And how does that? Why
1: is that? So I think part of what I was really interested in. Uh, we began by talking about say. Uh, why we would pay attention to the history of medicine and race rather than the history of science and race. One of the answers to that is, it's kind of silly, but it's true, they have different histories. And one of the things that I'm interested in then in the book is tracking places where um, somebody who believes something like polygenism, so black and white people are not related to one another and were created in separate creations, how that idea might relate to their medical claims. And one of the chapters I actually find most interesting is studying a surgeon named John Atkins. Um, And Atkins writes a text where he runs through a polygenist argument. He says that black and white people were created in separate creations. But what he doesn't argue even though in another part of the text he says, and Africans have different diseases to white people, what he never says is put those two things together and say, Africans have different diseases because they have different bodies to white people because they were made in a separate creation. He uses a kind of a classically Hippocratic argument about climate, so not a sensualist difference, when he's talking about disease While making an argument for essentialist differences in terms of race, when he's talking kind of natural philosophically. And what I think is most telling about that is that not only does he have no connection there, you can see how little connection there is because he eventually recants his polygenism and his medical arguments remain exactly the same. So they never, in his mind, had a necessary connection to one another uh, the, what could be race medicine, but wasn't, and his race science never actually connect in his mind. And that's another reason that I'm really interested in teasing apart, not completely, but somewhat histories of race and medicine and histories of race and science.
0: Hmm. You know, so I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, with this book, it's, um, you write in the beginning that, you know, there's kind of two ways people generally try to write about race. One is uh, in a sort of, well, we've we've had it since antiquity kind of right. way. And then the other is um, a far more precise definition um, about uh, the fixity of of bodies right. and uh, which we usually think of as emerging, you know, around the turn of the 19th century. Yep. Yep. Uh, and, and in this book, you favor that second way. What right. do you think are the stakes in that diff, in that in that precision and being more precise about this term
1: and what it means for our historiography and and more generally politically? Yeah, I think that's you put your finger on exactly the question in a way that I care about the most. So one of the ways we could answer that is saying, look, when does the history of the history of race? really become a field? And the answer, though, there are some outliers, is in essence after the end of World War II. And it's an attempt to explain the horrors of the Holocaust and the genocides of the first half of the 20th century. How did it become thinkable that a state could murder six million people on the basis of their race? And that sets up a set of questions. It's almost a a teleology. How did we get to, say, 1939 or 1942? And so if you now trace that history back, part of what you're particularly interested in then is race and fixity, because the argument is not that one could re-educate people. It's that people of different races were fundamentally fixed. And then within a ghastly uh, rationalism that uh, the way to then change them was to exterminate them. That's the kind of logic that we needed to recover to understand how these horrors could be possible. So that has meant that we've really been focused on 19th century racism, which is where those notions of fixity really come from. Fixity and biological determinism, both of which are crucial for explaining, for example, the Holocaust. Now, there are much earlier uses of the term race that don't involve those notions of fixity, although it must be said nothing like our biologist notions really in, um, in Hippocrates. So I'm particularly interested in understanding the 18th century precursors to those that full-blown 19th century uh, set of claims. So those are my stakes. I really am interested in uh, where those notions of fixity and particular causal arguments that lead to uh, racial determinism, where those come from, and the political stakes then are clear. Right? How were The worst horrors of the 20th century thinkable is a question I think we have to begin answering by looking in the 18th century, even though the full flourishing of them can be found in the mid 19th.
0: So, are there aspects of your book that we haven't covered that you want to make sure are part of this
1: interview? I don't think so. I think actually you hit on everything that I might um like to talk about <laughs> <laughs> great uh, well can you talk a little bit then i, I did have one other question which
0: is that this is primarily an intellectual history yeah. and uh and, but it's also written to be um a uh, a rebuke or a critique of of the intellectual history that preceded it which was all about uh you know certain famous uh naturalists in and philosophers in 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 england and uh, in Paris. Um, how do you see uh, intellectual history of of science and medicine changing right now and and where this book fits in that?
1: Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, I, th- I still think that uh, intellectual history, it may just be a matter of training. I was trained by a cultural historian. It does feel when I go to the History of Science Society, like many people do not explicitly call themselves intellectual historians anymore. It used to be quite common. Um, I think a distinction really does need to be made as I try and make it in the book between Um, a context-free history of ideas, an internalist history of ideas, which I don't like as much, although great work can be done, Um, and what I think of as the kind of intellectual history that I really like, where context matters enormously, but you're paying attention to ideas, and really what I try and do here, which is a context-laden history of arguments. Um, So, you know, all history of science doesn't need to be cultural history or political history. I think there's a real place for paying attention to in detail um, concepts and theories and so on. Um, But I do think that we need, as we have for many decades now, I think, to situate those ideas within their contexts and to see them as part of larger debates. Um, And I do think that that's a trend that's growing. I just suspect that many people don't like to call it intellectual history, (laughs) even if it sometimes seems to me that it really is. Yeah.
0: And you also see this book as being part of uh, this, of a combination of post-colonial studies in the history of science. Right. And what do you see
1: uh, as the stakes in doing that? I think there are lots. I think there's been a rather peculiar argument that's been happening in some of the literature for a while. Um, where there are people doing post-colonial science studies, which is largely contemporary. Um, As I know, and I've got a longer article on this, there's not nearly as much work done by historians where historians talk about post-colonial approaches. Warwick Anderson, I think, is one of the the few who very explicitly takes that up, post-colonial histories of colonial science. Um, And then there's a number of historians launching critiques of post-colonialism Where, honestly, I think their understanding of what post-colonial studies or theory is is really rooted in the 80s. It's 30 years out of date. So we have these very peculiar arguments where post-colonial studies people are saying, look, we need these non-binary accounts of dislocation and hybridity and malleability and change. Um, And then we have critiques which say, I don't want to do post-colonial studies. I want to do stuff that's attentive to non-binary studies that are good at, about malleability and hybridity and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems very strange to me. that critique does not in any way represent where the field is. I think that they're critiquing a kind of bogeyman of what Edward Said was decades ago and ignoring the massive shifts that came with the work of Spivak and Baba already in the 1990s. Yeah. Um, So it's a silly kind of debate. I think that there's lots of great resources for historians of science and STS people in post-colonial studies, and I don't think that they should be put off by these kind of strange critiques. I think in many ways, we've been doing similar kinds of work in post-colonial studies and science studies writ large. Um, And there's lots of borrowing that we can do that's incredibly productive. And that's part of what the book then is trying to do, to write a book where post-colonial studies people can recognize moves and then say, hopefully, uh, the history of science and medicine is a valuable part of post-colonial studies. And on the other side, that people who are interested in the history of medicine and science and race um, can say, wow, there are there are tools here in post-colonial studies that I could be using too. hmm <clears throat> Well,
0: that's fascinating. So uh, what are you uh, going to be working on next? What's your next
1: project? So it's actually uh, kind of closely related. One of the things that um, I'm interested in is precisely this notion of racial susceptibilities to disease. So precisely the argument that's happening today uh, where you get an argument for why race matters, that the certain races are more susceptible to certain diseases than others. I'm interested in when that argument emerges because we don't, as I've discussed, see very much of it in the 18th century. Um, but by the mid-19th century, it's assumed that it's a fact. Um, in fact, the, the way that the book I'm working on now is starting is in 1862, Charles Darwin sends a very peculiar survey out to uh, surgeons in the British Army, and he's asking them whether they have any evidence that light-haired people, light-haired British troops, uh, suffer more from tropical diseases than dark-haired British troops. So it's a peculiar question, but what's at the heart of that question is Darwin thinks that by answering that, he can answer where human races come from. He's convinced, as many people are in the 19th century, that what we would think of as a kind of natural selective argument, uh, your relationship to the sun and the climate, that that kind of argument cannot explain why some people are dark and some people are light. And so he offers a different argument. He says, look, what if we imagine that some people in a population have a greater immunity to, say, yellow fever and that through correlation but not causation, those people have darker skin. Then you would imagine that the darker-skinned people would be selected for over time, not because of their darker skin, but because of their immunity to disease, which is what those two are correlated by. And what I, so I'm fascinated by that kind of argument. It's the paper that I'm working on at the moment, But I'm also interested in the fact that Darwin just says straight up, because we all know that Negroes, in his language, have a greater susceptibility to yellow fever than white people. He just says it as a fact, which is not, for the most part, what people in the 18th century say. Hmm. They say people who are born in the West Indies have less susceptibility to yellow fever, but they don't make it an issue of race. For Darwin, it's thoroughly an issue of race. And so I'm interested in essence in what happens between 1800 and 1871 when he publishes The Descent of Man, such that it's natural to say that there are racial susceptibilities or immunities to disease. Well, I look forward to that book when it's ready. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. And... Uh... Uh, I look forward to your future work, Zooming. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me.